0: Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb.
0: And my name is Julie Douglas.
1: Uh, Julie, you have an announcement you want to make for everybody.
0: It is so hot in Atlanta. (laughs) It really, oh my gosh, 98 degrees today. It's brutal. It is brutal. Wait, that's, yeah, that's not really what I was going to say, though.
1: Uh, well, I mean, everyone needs to be up on the weather that we're experiencing. here. But. I
0: know it's a diversionary tactic, really, because this is my last episode on stuff to blow your mind. And I am leaving the podcast to work on a couple of projects for how stuff works. So just wanted to let you guys know, not going very far. But in the meantime, I am leaving you guys in the very capable hands of Christian Sager and Joe McCormick who have been filling in for me over the last month and they have been uh, turning in some really fine work and I'm sure you guys have all had a chance to meet them by now. They are great guys.
1: so yeah indeed uh, for those who've uh, been asking you know what's what's going on uh, there you have it. then again Julie's uh still very much a part of the house stuff Works uh, team is going you're gonna see a lot of exciting stuff coming out and uh, and indeed thank you for sharing uh, the journey with me thus far and helping to to, de- to develop stuff to blow your mind as we know it today
0: yeah thanks thanks for uh, making it so much fun I can't believe that it's been three years I think now three and a half years or so that we first <laughs> sat down with a spreadsheet and we tried to figure out all these different topics that we wanted to cover um, so it's been an absolute pleasure and um uh you know, I can't say we'll always have Paris, but we will always have cloaca. Yes. I mean if you want. I mean that sounds weird. We, but we will. will always have Cloaca. We will. All right. Uh enough of this stuff here. Let's get to the topic at hand today.
1: Yes, uh we're talking about utopia. Uh <laughs> but uh as 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 with any uh discussion of utopia, uh we're gonna get into some pretty dark territory.
0: Right. I mean, cause you, this is just the, the beauty of this. You cannot have utopia without dystopia, right? You wouldn't even know what it was mm-hmm. without the, uh, the negative side of that coin. And, uh, we're just gonna take you bits into a time capsule here. So just imagine that it's the sixties. You're a scientist with just scads okay. of very fine rodents at your disposal.
1: Yes, top shelf, the best you can, uh, you can buy.
0: M- Mwah, kind of rodents. And you have this desire to play out the drama of overpopulation. In fact, in the Proceedings of the Royal Society of Medicine in 1973, you describe the outset of your quest thusly, quote, I shall largely speak of mice, but my thoughts are on man, on healing, on life, and its evolution. <laughs> and then you go on to name check the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse before you get onto the details of your overpopulation experiment. You are John B. Calhoun.
1: Yes. Uh, who's a, a very, a very interesting individual. Um, born in 1917, died in 95, uh, American animal behaviorist. And uh, he was actually born uh, in Tennessee, uh, specifically Elkton, Tennessee, just the next county over. Uh, from Lincoln County, where I went to uh, to high school. Uh, he went to high school in Nashville. He went on to earn his undergraduate degree at the University of Virginia and earned a doctorate in zoology from Northwestern University in 1943. And uh, from there, he embarked on a 40-year career, mostly at the National Institute of Mental Health, or NIM, uh, where he organized a unit for research on behavioral systems at the Laboratory of Brain Evolution and Behavior. Now, He's best remembered for work fo- that focused on the troubling effects of overpopulation on rats and mice. Effects that mis- might just paint a very bleak picture of humanity's future in an overcrowded world.
0: Right. And he goes on to create something called Universe 25, which we'll talk about. But at about the same time that his paper is published, and his paper is called Death Squared, the Explosive Growth and Demise of a Mouse Population, mm-hmm. there's a bunch of stuff going on in society. In fact, there's a kind of a zeitgeist about overpopulation playing out.
1: Yeah, this is the, the post-war period where everything's just getting built up. The population's uh, coming back, people are, are, are booming, technology is booming, uh, the cities are growing, swelling even, and uh, there are some growing pains associated with that.
0: Yeah, and you even have, uh, bits of media that are being consumed, fictional, that are reflecting this. For instance, something called Soylent Green, which was this movie that depicted a future of an overcrowded world where the population could only survive on Soylent Green, a food handout from the government, which turns out to be made from human corpses. Yes. Yeah you know pretty good supply that was fueling people's imaginations and their fears
1: yeah uh, and a lot of those fears yeah were related to resources right if there are this many people and we keep uh, breeding how are we going to feed everybody how are how are we going to have enough to maintain
0: so in the meantime, you've got John Calhoun, who has been working with rodents for a number of years and has been preoccupied with this question of overpopulation. And he does turn to these rats because they're easy to observe, right? They, they quickly have successive generations and there are similarities to humans. They're, they're clever little beings and they're highly social.
1: Yeah, as we discussed in our recent episode on on rats specifically, um, you know, rodents are just a a, a very handy uh, reference point for any kind of scientific exploration of human psychology or human anatomy.
0: So Calhoun, who who uh, first becomes obsessed with this idea, creates something called Rat City on a quarter acre of land. Adjacent to his home in Towson, Maryland in 1947. And he sees that the population in this pen peaks at 200. And he's kind of confused by it because he knows that they could far exceed that. And in Mm. fact, he, he begins to see the deleterious effects of overpopulation at just 80. So... For three decades, he, at the uh, National Institute of Mental Health, he creates iterations of this. And, in fact, you could say these are 24 iterations of what is now known as Universe 25.
1: Yes. So I will, uh, I'll describe Universe 25 for you, and this will give you a good idea of the various iterations that came before as well. So, essentially, you're talking about a large, industrial-looking square tank Uh, Imagine a miniature building designed by H.R. Giger for uh, some set designs. You know, it looks kind of like a medieval fortress too. Cozy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it does not. Yeah, it doesn't look cozy at all. It's 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 quite intimidating, especially in some of the pictures we were looking at that are a little little grainy, a little dark. Right. Um, the square tank was 101 inches square, or 2.6 meters square, enclosed by. 54 inch high or 1.4 meter high walls. Now, the first 37 inches of that uh, that wall, from uh, from bottom towards the top, those are designed so that the mice can scale it willy nilly. But above uh, this, the remaining 17 inches are bare wall that they can't uh, scramble up. Um, so you, you can think of it as a walled city again, but uh, with no access to the battlements. It, I mean, it's essentially more like a prison, I guess. Um, in addition, you have 16 vertical mesh tunnels, or stairwells, that are soldered to each wall. Four horizontal corridors lead off of each stairwell, and each of these lead to four nesting boxes. And in total, we're looking at 256 boxes, each sizable enough for uh, about 15 rodents to live inside.
0: And that's one of the things that Calhoun found out quickly when he did those other iterations, is that... Um that the mice would typically not go over 12 within each group. So he did create an apartment to house up to 15 mice because he knew that that was part of their behavior. So he did try to mirror some of the things that he saw in those, uh, those different versions. Now, this, uh, this universe 25, does does have quite a few amenities. There is no infinity pool, um, (laughs) but there's a lot of abundant, clean food and water and nesting materials, which would be really important. The universe was cleaned every four to eight weeks, and of course there were no predators, and the temperature was kept at a steady 68 degrees Fahrenheit. So, all in all, if you had to create a utopia for rodents, Mm -hmm. this might be what it looks like without really knowing Intimately what rodents want
1: Yeah, seemingly it provides The necessary space, the necessary Resources to both feed yourself And to carry out your basic genetic Mission, right?
0: Yeah, sounds good, right?
1: Yeah, alright, so Move-in day arrives uh, He kicks off with just Four breeding pairs of mice uh, and That are moved in on day one And these again are disease-free Top shelf, just elegant mice So, eight mice total and these are the individuals that are going to reproduce and populate this little city, this little universe with all their furry offspring. And, uh, and this is ideal. As we mentioned, mice are small, short generation time, accelerated lifespan that we can study. One mouse year equals about 30 human years. Each mouse lives about two to five years. The gestation period in female mice is less than a month, and the female mouse has an average litter size of about six baby mice. And breeding onset is uh, about 50 days.
0: So, yeah, now imagine the, these four breeding pair, um, the top shelf, as you say, <laughs> entering this enclosure. And what do they do? Well, if you've ever moved into a new house as a little kid, then you know probably what this looks like they would go into that enclosure and go into the apartments and they would try to find every single food source and really just get a feel for that environment right which would make sense they didn't care about breeding or eating mainly at first because they just wanted to get the lay of the land and individual mice were kept track of with color markings in their fur which was true of successive generations as well
1: yeah so this uh first phase is the strive phase that's the term uh, calhoun used for it um First 104 days, where the mice are just getting accustomed to the new environment. Uh, they're establishing their territories. They're creating their nests. Just moving in, business as usual. Nothing out of the ordinary. It's it's kind of it's kind of like the utopia set up in any film, and like having a utopia <laughs> in your in your fiction. Yeah. It's kind of like bringing a cannon on a stage. Right, you bring a cannon on a stage, you have to fire it. You introduce utopia into your fiction that utopia has to fall into chaos and madness. This is the period in which you just have utopia, business as usual, with no concerns about uh, resources or predators.
0: Yeah, I'm just imagining the kind of whimsical, flowy music that usually accompanies these scenes of utopia, or really any scene that's being set up as like, oh, this is wonderful, life is great, and then you hear the minor piano key, like, (laughs) and that would be the exploit phase kicking in. Now, this phase lasted about 250 days, And the population of the mice doubled every 60 days. And even though there was identical allotments of food in space throughout Universe 25, food was being consumed more in certain areas. That's because the mice began to associate eating and drinking with being with others. And the population started to gravitate toward certain compartments where all of the eating took place. And this made some apartments and compartments crowded well beyond their capacity while other apartments remained completely empty. And now you can hear those other minor chords coming into play, right?
1: Yeah, things are starting to, to seem a little bit, uh, a little bit weird. But, uh, but then we enter a phase that Calhoun called the equilibrium phase. Which sounds great, right? Things are going to even out. Things are going right. to equal out. But uh, the equilibrium in question here is the, the population number, uh, which means that the, uh, the, the the population is evening out. Uh, and he also referred to this as the stagnation phase. Um, why is population evening out? Because there's less reproduction going on. There's less successful reproduction going on. And there is a lot of violence that flares up. And we're going to get into the details of that violence uh here in a bit, but essentially you see uh, a divide between the sexes and you see some rather graphic displays of violence on both sides.
0: Yeah, pretty spectacular displays of it, Um, particularly when you get into the next phase, which is the die phase, and the population begins to decline at 2,200, even though Universe 25 could accommodate up to 3,000 mice. And Calhoun notices that animals become a lot less aware of each other, even though they're in closer contact than before. I mean, they're side by side, stacked in with each other. And by day 560, the population increase plunges next to nothing, and a few mice survive past winning until day 600. After that, there's a few pregnancies that don't come to fruition, and there are no surviving young, which seems odd because you would think think that as the population decreases and territories are regained, that there would be some sort of stasis enacted, right? Like there would be some sort of return to normal activities like mating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean you'd think that after this equilibrium period where all this um, bad stuff goes on and you see the birth rate plummeting and infant mortality rates reaching 90 percent in some areas, that some reason would restore itself. It's kind of like we you know we see in the various ups and downs throughout history. Things get bad, but then things even out but not so in Universe 25.
0: Right, and this becomes something known as the behavioral
1: sink. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will define behavioral sink. We will talk about the details of the violent downfall of Universe 25.
0: And not to mention the beautiful ones.
1: Oh, yeah. All right, we're back. So behavioral sync. This is Calhoun's name for the point past which the slide into breakdown becomes irreversible. Uh, refer to it as a parapathology of shared hopelessness. And I like to think of it in terms of a, of a black hole, right? Uh, it's a black hole of pathological behavior that forms out of the collapsing mass of an overpopulated society. It's the, it's the event horizon. You know, that, that once you, uh, you pass that event horizon, there's no escaping the, uh, the, the mass of the black hole. And this is the point of no return for civilizational downfall, at least with the rodents, if not with humans.
0: Yeah, and John Calhoun called it the first death. Um, he said it's, it's sort of akin to like the death of the mind and the soul of yeah. the creature, uh, not really implying that they have a soul, but basically saying there are two types of death here. There's the body death, which eventually happens, but mm-hmm. this sort of like non-striving, not not living for anything, not mating, not really caring about your environment. And so you can see how this behavioral sink and this, um, this second death and first death, all these terms are being thrown around. And you could see how they would have a really big impact with people who are cluing in on, on his paper.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, we're talking about the uh, an existential apocalypse, uh, a teleological apocalypse.
0: So that kind of leads to this whole other aspect of Universe 25 that really came to define what happened and why it happened, and that is this aggression that came out of it. And this was largely because of the overcrowding in certain areas, particularly the feeding areas. Mm-hmm. It meant that the newer generations born into Universe 25, the chaotic version, they didn't have the kind of social conditioning that would allow them to form bonds. Uh, so in addition, you have the constant stimulation, the scurrying for food and space, And this means that that some of the rodents became exceedingly aggressive, and this spiraled off into different factions of behavior for other rodents. So the, the reaction to that sort of aggression is that you had some rats who, or excuse me, mice who retreated, and then you had those who tried to retreat, but then they were sought after to actually be attacked over and over again. And then those who who were attacked a lot then became attackers, and then you had what I call the super bullies. Yes. The, the outcast.
1: Yes. The uh, the outcasts. Uh This and this is very much in line with with any uh, any kind of like Mad Max post apocalyptic scenario where you have these warlords that rise out of the disorder and they're they're just the the most. Awful, heinous people possible that just rule by sheer brutality. And that's what we see uh, popping up in uh, Universe 25 after about day 315. Male mice without social roles stop trying to defend territory or they stop trying to breed. Instead, they just end up wandering, congregating in the middle of the universe with other loners. And it's here that you see particularly dominant, particularly aggressive uh, males rising to the top through just sheer brutality, attacking their fellow mice, uh, just roaming around, assaulting, raping other members of Universe 25, and asserting their dominance.
0: Yeah, and I love this Mad Max analogy that you make because it really helps you to understand why the breeding stopped. Because within this environment, you don't have... Uh, couple saying, oh, let's mate. Let's do this. Let's, Mm -hmm. let's, um, let's really spend an inordinate amount of time caring for young. You don't have those kind of resources available if you're worried that you can't survive, right? So that's what you're seeing in terms of the kind of reaction or fallout from, from the outcasts as Calhoun talks about them. But you're also seeing another subset emerge from this. And the die phase sees this new subset, a new generation of mice emerge that had never been subjected again to any sort of normal conditioning. And they showed absolutely no interest in fighting, courtship, mating, raising young, or really anything that had to do with one another. Um, They did all group together. And one of the things that they did the most was groom
1: Ah, okay.
0: So they were constantly preening themselves and eating. Just just imagine these sort of, you know, fat mice with these beautiful coats and, uh, as Calhoun describes them, alert eyes.
1: Up in their ivory towers while wow. yes. there's this chaos and apocalyptic warfare going on.
0: Yes, that's, mm-hmm. that's beautifully described. That is what he termed... The beautiful ones ah. <laughs> who who occupy this ivory tower of space, and while they were together, none of them would actually interact with one another, and of course they had no interest in mating. And so Calhoun and the researchers thought, well, what if we remove them from Universe Twenty Five and we put them in an enclosure that has all of the benefits of Universe Twenty Five? In other words, um, you know, all the food that they wanted, um, you know, uh, cages that were cleaned, so on and so forth they would probably return to normal, right? That was the idea with these alert-eyed mice. They did that, and, of course, the beautiful ones just continued to groom themselves and eat and had absolutely no interest. And that was very surprising for the researchers, and it further underscored that there was a kind of behavioral sink that happened. It's that, that first death.
1: Right, so they were already just existentially dead inside
0: Right. It didn't matter that they had uh, changed geography. They were who they were now. And so, of course, all of this taken together, you can see how the public would take the details of this, this sort of like pansexualism, this mm-hmm. cannibalism that would occur, um, this extreme violence, and then begin to try to make these apples to apples comparisons with human populations.
1: Yeah. I mean, well, we, we couldn't help even as we were going over notes before the episode, uh, I... Uh I've I mentioned that I, I couldn't help but think of uh, Wells, the Time Machine, and the Morlocks, uh, the horrible Morlocks that, that lived underground, and then the, the beautiful surface dwellers who just kind of wandered around in a drugged-out haze on the surface. And then, of course, you brought up uh, Kardashians.
0: I did. I said, <laughs> unfortunately, when when I read about the beautiful ones, I thought, oh, there's it's the Kardashians. Yeah. I get it, with their beautifully coiffed hair. Um, and
1: if you took them out of their environment, and you put them on a desert island, Uh what would happen?
0: They would continue to groom themselves, (laughs) I'm pretty sure of it. Perhaps that's an unfair assessment, however. Um, But one of the things that I think is really striking about this experiment, and we kind of touched on it at the beginning, is the way that Calhoun paints the picture for his reading audience.
1: Yeah. So often with uh, with scientific papers and studies, you uh, and anyone who's ever you know read through one of these can can certainly uh, certainly knows what I'm talking about. Is that you know oftentimes everything's very clinical and straightforward, and it's not till the, the you know the conclusions at the end and the or maybe the the suggestions where they they start making comparisons to to humans and start looking into the future for for our own development and uh, and our own progress. But with with Calhoun's work, it's there from from the get go. It's in the the very fabric of the paper Uh, he's just right off the bat he's referring to the dwelling places as tower blocks and walk up apartments Uh, again he's talking about the beautiful ones the juvenile delinquents the dropouts. so everything's very just heavily anthropomorphic um and, uh, and, it's, and all this language meshes perfectly, as we discussed, with the cultural fears that are out there in the 60s and, and uh, the 70s to follow. You know, full of uh, fictional metropolises and degenerate societies, the world of Solent green, of clockwork orange, um, taxi driver era New York City, mm-hmm. you know, where we just see the, the, the modern city as just this uh, this the this, uh, this sewer of, of, of delinquent activity
0: yeah, and you have a lot of authors at that time who are specifically looking at New York City and mm-hmm. looking down, you know, from the heights of their buildings yeah. at, from you know, the people below and um, and describing them like rats. yeah, right. Like there's that's not a coincidence. A lot of um, what Calhoun is looking at is starting to really seep out into popular culture. Now, post Calhoun, of course, people kind of sort of straighten themselves up a little bit and, and look at it a little bit more dispassionately. And they begin to say, okay, this is not an apple-to-apple situation. Um, you can't say that the humans in New York City are like rats in the enclosure of Universe 25, because first of all, humans have agency, meaning that we don't, as far as we know, have this giant hand mm-hmm. who is like picking us up and putting us into places and feeding us and giving this." us an endless supply of resources, which is, of course, the second problem of this experiment. This is um, about a utopia with everything that you would need, whereas in human life, we do not have the resources always uh, at our disposal. We have to strive for them. Uh, moreover, you have psychologist Jonathan Friedman, who tries to create a as as well as he can, Universe 25 with humans, but within the limits of law, of course, (laughs) and having some sort of integrity. He tries to recreate this among high school and university students, and he finds that the population density is not creating the sort of aggression that you would expect. And he does a series of these experiments. He measures their stress, their discomfort, aggression, competitiveness, and just their general unpleasantness. And he finds that individuals employed to carry out tasks under varying conditions of density, they display very few pathologies. So it's not this kind of situation that yields a clue that, oh, yes, humans, humans could uh, befall the same sort of tragedies if overpopulation happens in earnest.
1: Yeah, Friedman ends up uh, suggesting that the, the moral decay that you see in uh, Universe 25 wasn't the result of population density itself, but more about excessive social interaction. Because they hadn't all gone crazy. They didn't all turn into, uh, you know, insane warlords. Uh, the ones who managed to control their own space actually led normal rodent lives, uh, you know, amid the madness. Uh, so it's all about the the balance, right? The, the, the uh Appropriate levels of privacy and community. Um, but unwanted and unavoidable social interaction, that's what Friedman believes led to all the horror.
0: Yeah, and there's also uh, something called contra-freeloading, which we should consider within the whole context of this. Now, this is from Dan Ariely, who is a behavioral economist and He said that it is a tendency for animals to prefer earned food rather than free food. So this is, again, part of that resources question. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for instance, uh, Ariel Lee's parrot was described as having a propensity to self-mutilate if it was just kept in a cage and fed without keeping its mind engaged. So that's why when you go to a zoo and you see a polar bear eating uh, a fish, that polar bear actually had to make its way through a block of ice in order to get to the fish. There was some sort of challenge or obstacle there.
1: Yeah, I mean, the organism has evolved with a purpose and a design, and if you just give it the resources... Uh, that its whole system is game to achieve naturally and with a struggle, uh, there's going to be a disconnect. Yeah.
0: And to go back to your point, though, about how um, within the Universe 25 community, there were some mice that were actually faring okay. Mm -hmm. This is something that is underplayed, right? Because you hear about all the terrible things going on, but you don't hear a lot about the actual... I guess you could call it creativity and innovation that was happening.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of, kind of crazy because, you know, we love the idea of an apocalypse. And clearly, uh, uh, everyone uh, absorbing this study, like it's easy to just focus on the doom aspect of it. But you look at any bit of post-apocalyptic uh, media, be it the, you know, the Walking Dead or Mad Max, like the heroes are the individuals that more or less are able to thrive in this environment. You know?
0: Yeah, and I think that speaks to us because we want to learn how to do the same thing, right? Right. Like That's why it's so compelling because we're like, how are you surviving? What sort of grit do you have? What sort of creativity?
1: Yeah, so uh, Calhoun found that animals that were better able to handle high numbers of social interactions, which is key because we just discussed like that it's about all that unwanted social interaction, uh, he found that the, uh, the rodents who could handle all of that uh, unwanted social interaction um, – Actually, did pretty well, and he dubbed them "high social velocity mice," uh, which I like to think of as the, you know, the real uh, extroverts of the of the the mouse population. You know, the kind of the kind of mouse who goes home in the evening and then really has to get back out there and socialize at the like the nearest pub or or hangout, right? They just uh, yeah, always have to yeah. be in a conversation.
0: Um, and I think about this in the context of how stuff works. Mm-hmm. Like, if we were all mice, high velocity mice, um. Holly Fry would be our leader.
1: Yes, she is definitely a a high-velocity mouse. Yeah,
0: she would survive, Mm -hmm. right. Um, And then she would still manage to sew something or have some sort of project that she's working on the side.
1: Yeah, I mean, as long as she can stay away from the warlord Ben Boland and his uh, roving band.
0: Well, that is true today. Like, that's not hypothetical. When you say that, (laughs) we're actually talking about that right now.
1: Yeah, he needs to stop wearing those skull shoulder pads around. Those are intimidating.
0: Well, and also, I think that... Eventually, they're going to lose some of their impact, right? Yeah. Especially when he keeps putting those googly eyes on them. I know. Um, Here's the thing about Calhoun and his paper, Death Squared. He was really dismayed at the direction that all of this took, that his findings took, because he might have been a little bit immune to all of his findings in the three decades he'd been doing this, right? Like the Mm -hmm. the violence and so on and so forth. He was more concerned with that actual creativity and innovation. And he thought he thought Universe 25 was like this really good model or could potentially be a good model of how cities could actually become competent and creative and um, avoid this kind of violence and aggression. And he actually went on to make 100 more versions of Universe 25 to try to take all those negatives and turn them into positives and have the rodents. Work in a way that was creative and innovative.
1: Yeah, I mean, he wasn't just saying, "Hey, the apocalypse is coming; let's mark it on our calendars." He was—he was ultimately all about let's let's figure out how to reschedule the apocalypse or just postpone it indefinitely. Find ways to correct course and actually. Live effectively in these large uh, high population uh, high population density environments
0: um one of the other positive things that came out of universe twenty five inadvertently, I guess you could say, <laughs> is Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of NIM. oh yes, yeah, a children's book that later became the secret of NIM, the nineteen eighty two film. And uh, NIM, of course, is the acronym for National Institute of Mental Health. And the plot line of the story, at least one of the plot lines, is that there's these super intelligent rats that escape from Nim.
1: Yeah, I never read the the, the book, but I, I fondly remember the film, seen the film many times as a child. It's a beautifully... Darkly animated Don Bluth film with a whole host of uh, of various voice actors that really bring it to life.
0: I will say too, the the scariest and most intense part is, of course, in the lab when you see the the rodents being preyed upon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I say preyed upon because you know it's depicted in that way, and of course you've got these syringes that they're being injected with, mm-hmm. uh, and it is kind of dark, but uh, it's a it's a lovely film.
1: Yeah. And in a way, it really harkens back to the the source study right I mean there's a lot of darkness in it, but ultimately his aim was to say hey how can we how can we grow around this how can we how can we achieve where the uh uh where the the rodents of universe 25 failed.
0: Right, maybe we don't have to be super intelligent rats that have to escape Nim, okay. but maybe we could approach uh the way that we design our environments in a way that actually helps us to interact better and and to deal with uh what are actually some real consequences of overpopulation? Right. You know, we're not trying to discount that at all. Um I did have to say though, I think that this topic like all others uh, all roads lead to singularity, to the singularity, because we've talked about this before. There's this idea that the future will be so automated
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, that we will maybe create our own sort of universe 25 where it's always 68 degrees Fahrenheit and there's always food available and <laughs> you know everything is being done for us.
1: Well, and, and in that, I think the hope is that our uh, AI masters... We'll uh, we'll have to figure out ways to make sure everything remains interesting for us. And, hey, maybe they already have. Maybe we're already living in a simulation, right?
0: Follow and, the matrix. Yeah.
1: And this is all just uh, all the struggles in our life are just there because our computer overlord said, eh, they're not really handling this utopia thing all that well. Make them think that this is uh, five hundred a thousand years ago, and uh, then, they'll, then they'll have a decent struggle.
0: You know the next time I miss a deadline, I'm going to use that. I'm yeah. going to say, you know, we're we're inside of the matrix right now. This is just <laughs> one of the obstacles to keep it interesting.:
1: I think it should be a valid excuse.:
0: All Right. This yeah. is my ice block. Guys, thanks for letting me hang out in your ear holes for the last couple of years. I've really enjoyed it, and I've loved hearing from you guys. We've said this before, but um, your feedback and just your thoughts on, you know, an array of topics have really helped to define what Stuff to Blow Your Mind is. So, we appreciate it. Uh, I'll see you on the flip side. In the meantime, you can visit us a couple different places.
1: Right, stufftoblowyourmind.com. Uh, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, uh, we're on Tumblr. Uh, check out all those places and you will find our content, our blogs, our videos, our podcasts, uh, and, uh, you know, our thoughts on all sorts of, uh, breaking science news, et cetera.
0: And keep that feedback coming. You can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Yeah.